Is social media really delivering on its promise of democratising communication? Or have we just replaced one model that privileges those with power for another? My name is Andrea Carson and welcome to The Conversation podcast. I'm speaking with Professor Robert Picard, one of the world's leading academics on government communication policies and media economics. You describe digital and social media as performing a function that is humanising. What do you mean by that? Well, the traditional media have, have, have not given the voice to the greater amount of people. It was somebody speaking to the masses. And what social and digital media are doing is connecting individuals and allowing them to express themselves and their ideas and their reactions to things in a way that's much more normal um, to traditional interpersonal and human communication than the mass media or that being the case, would you say that traditional media is dehumanising? It, it's very structured communication, it's produced in, in an institution, and so it's not the normal human communication that takes place in a mass media environment. And so in that res- regard, it is dehumanising, and it, it alienates the public from the communication itself. Talk about a reformation of the media where the power balance is moving from old media or traditional media to new media and, and reinvigorating um, the power of the individual. Yeah, it, it certainly is, and we see this that all, all well-established legacy news organizations um, are fighting to find their place in the new environment. They're losing some of their support. Uh, they're losing some of their audiences. Um, they're losing some of their influence as these new forms begin to appear and provide opportunities for others to express, for startups to occur, and for the public to engage in different ways than they engage with the legacy media. And so we're creating a new sphere in which the communications that used to take place in traditional mass media are now moving. So legacy media are trying to find their place there as well and are trying to move in there and make it work as well. Um, And they can never replicate the kind of power that they had in the other arrangement because it's it's much more diffused um, for individual participants there. But uh, they will try to be there as well. So what does this mean for corporates and for elites that have used the traditional media very well in order to carve out society in the shape that they want it to be in? It essentially means you can't dictate the discussion anymore. You, and it used to be that you could, you could create um, communications, you could create uh, um, advertising plans or communication plans that you could get a message across very easily. In the new environment, you're very often reacting to the messages created by others. And so you are not as powerful in this um, communication and this discussion as you were in the other environment. Um, So it means you have to be much more agile in in your reaction to it. And you have to be much more open in terms of understanding how other people speak, why they're speaking the way they are, and how they're engaging in that system. And yet the platforms that we use in order to engage in social media are owned by large multinational companies. How does that affect the way that we communicate with each other? This is the conundrum of social media and digital media as a whole. The idea was, well, we're going to open this up. It's going to be completely available and free for society to use. 
but underlying them are infrastructures and systems and processes that are necessary to make it all work and those are owned by commercial firms and so when you're dealing with the Googles and the Facebooks and the others of the world um, they have their own desires of what they're trying to achieve in this space and because they become the gateways and the and the infrastructures of how the system works um, it puts them in a very powerful position and so in many ways these are these are the new elites and new power forces in this new structural system is there also do you see pockets of inequality that if you're not familiar with how to use these technologies or platforms that you may fall behind well it certainly is true that there there are other there are people who are not able to express themselves and I don't want to say it's necessarily falling behind but they're just not moving forward <laughs> they're still stuck in in the mode of the 1960s the 80s the 90s before social media came around so they're still acted upon rather than being an active participant um, and and we as humans do better and human development does better when we're active participants in society and so one needs to find ways to either teach people how to use them to provide access to these uh, um, systems um, to to bring people into the discussion and invigorate their uh, um, participation in society there's an analogy that getting information from Twitter is a little bit like trying to get a drink from a fire hydrant there's plenty of flow of water but it's difficult to get a decent drink. If this is the case, what does the mass, who makes sense of the mass information coming at us, the cacophony of sound? How do we uh, get to hear clear messages? Who are the sense makers? This is the, the interesting thing that's happening now is we're getting a lot of sense makers. Um, we, we used to have the sense makers being primarily the mass media, putting it together, um, and other institutions, uh, social and educational institutions and others doing that. And what we have now in this new environment is we have economists that are running their own sites expressing what's going on in the economy of the world and the society. We have scientists doing the same thing. We have bankers doing the same. We have social workers doing the same. And so they're looking at specialty sub-areas and making sense of what's happening and what the developments mean for those areas. So there's new locations of sense-making. Um, and many of these are actually being done on, on a, a not-for-profit or at a, as a marginal profit um, kind of activity and this is very disturbing particularly to the larger commercial interests that used to do the sense making and make very good money for it so so new things are happening and those sense making are getting passed around on the social media so people are saying oh we've been talking about this problem here's something I read that's really interesting and they'll pass that on and so it's a new environment in which um, um, information and ideas and sense making takes place. Of course also in that new environment personal information gets shared and passed around among friends. Is there a danger here that we're blurring the lines between the public communication spaces and also the private? I think so and, and, and we, we definitely are seeing people express things that, that, that they would previously only expressed to their best friends and um, they're, they're going out widely to all kinds of people and we've seen this being a, a, a tr trouble for a lot of young people for instance as they've moved from having a very active partying social life in, in school suddenly now they're having to be uh, respectable members of, of the community looking for a job and suddenly they don't want all these pictures of them partying wildly uh, um, to be available that are, that are 
there. And, and I think we see this with lots of things now that as, as we change as individuals in our different periods of our life, um, you know, we're seeing in the social end, people are saying, ooh, how do you get rid of or how do you remake yourself? when your whole life is chronicled in there. So there are a lot of privacy issues that come in. And can you do that? Can you unscramble that egg? I, I think it's very difficult. To, um, yes, you can, you can unscramble it a bit, but if somebody wants to go back and look, they're gonna find, uh, find the original egg. <laughs> if we turn to the political economy of the media, which you've written many books on, what is the problem for the public with large conglomerates owning media organisations and, as is the case in Australia, concentration of ownership of media companies? Well, in, in any kind of communications, what you're looking at is, are there structures, are there ownership structures, are there um, institutions that give undue advantage to certain companies or to certain individuals? And are they, as a result of that, able to influence society to a greater extent than others in society? And is there an uneven ability to influence society? And what we see with um, commercial ownership sometimes, but it also can involve non-commercial ownership, is you can constrain the degree of discussion or the topics that are discussed, or you can emphasize certain ones, or you can promote a certain viewpoint if you have these dominant structures. And that becomes a problem. And so uh, when one looks at ownership, whether it be of traditional media or ownership of audiences and in, in, in digital media or ownership of the, of the structures of the digital media, all of these things become an issue of not the ownership themselves, but what do they do to plurality? What do they do to the ability to have a diverse viewpoint on what is happening in society? That being the case, do you support media regulation? Well, there's a certain amount, you know, it, it, media regulation is a loaded term uh, because part of the part of the regulation is just competition regulation that has nothing to do with media. Um, are, are, are companies acting in a way that harms other companies and consumers? That's a basic uh, competition regulation that's necessary in a capitalist society. Um, and on media regulation, the media regulation and policy issues come down into two two forms. One is where you have regulation saying you can't do something or you, you're not allowed to do this. Um, others often become policy incentives to, if you'll do these better things, we'll do something else. And so you can use different kinds of policies to influence the behavior of different kinds of firms. But a lot of the problems that we see involving media today have to do not so much with necessarily that, that, that an owner is trying to control or do something, but just the overwhelming commercialization of the media um, takes away some of the functions, uh, the social functions that we need in society to have it work. And so you have to restore that usually through incentives and other things rather than regulation itself. The other side of political economy of the media is that the business model for print newspapers has fractured as journalism has become decoupled from advertising. Do you think print newspapers will survive? Some will survive and they'll survive for a while. They may survive in different forms. Um, you know, up until about the 1970s, the average daily newspaper only published four or five days a week. And the advertising in the, in, the, in the 70s and 80s allowed them to expand to six or seven days a week. So we think that's normal. And so now some are going back to five days a week and we say, oh, that's terrible because it's something we've been used to. In some places, they're dropping back to four days a week. And people are saying, oh, that's so shocking. Well, 
Um, it's not. Historically, that's the way they published before, on the days that you could make money from advertising. What's better now is you can combine that with digital, so they can um, provide a lot of material on the times they don't, the days they don't publish, or in addition to what they're publishing in print, they can publish online as well. So, so there's more options that are there. The the issue to me is not whether newspapers survive or television news survives. The issue to me is whether the functions that they serve in society you know, survives. And I think from a policy standpoint, that's really what you want to look at: is are the functions surviving, and if not, what do we do to ensure that those functions are met in society. In terms though, of business models, are there any in particular that you think might sustain media and journalism and the functions of journalism into the future? For example, do you think paywalls might become the norm? They certainly have increased in the last couple of years. They are increasing and we're seeing more of them and I, th I think that that will become the norm. I mean in Canada for instance now um, more than 80% of the newspapers are behind paywalls or, um, on their apps and, and their online environment. Um, it's, it's about 65%, uh, 70% in the UK now, about 50% in the US. And so I, I think we're moving that way, that people are getting used to the idea that merely because it's digital doesn't mean it's free. And so we're, and more importantly, the, the systems that allow you to pay easily are improving and, and appearing in digital media. So that, that, that I think is, is, is a part of it, but it's not enough. Um, and uh, uh, because although consumers can pay a, a good part of the money uh, and more money than they paid for in print in the past, um, not enough money will exist to make up for what was lost from advertising. So um, newspapers are looking for business models that have multiple sources of revenues and so they're running events, uh, they're doing many other other kinds of activities and commercial even in some instances? Absolutely, we've got, got matchmaking is, is actually very good, some are running wine clubs, some are doing financial uh, um, um, uh, advisement, uh, um, many are looking for, 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 for ways that they can survive but that's not all that unusual, it's just unusual compared to the 20th century because if you go back to the 19th century, many newspapers used to run bookshops, they used to run lots of commercial printing, they used to, some of them served as, as branch offices to stock markets, you know, you had, many of them had different things that they did, but as advertising grew, they didn't have to do those things anymore, so they got rid of them, and now we're seeing a move back to doing many things to bring in the money that's, that's needed. And I guess just finally, with your expertise, are you an optimist or a pessimist perhaps about the state of journalism and where you see it heading in the future? I'm an optimist. I mean, certainly transition is rocky. Um, but uh, journalism, um, journalism isn't linked to a particular form of media. It's not linked to a, a particular form of, of, of consumption. Uh, what it is is a group of practices that help you sort through information, find out what's important, how to ask questions about that information and those developments in a very organized kind of fashion. And it exists because it's useful. And, and I, you know, those functions will still be needed in the future. Uh, it may be practiced in a different form by different individuals working for different kinds of organizations and different kinds of structures, but the functions will need to be, be handled, I think. So I'm positive about the functions because they're useful to us as human beings.